My guest today is the General Manager and VP EMEA for Iterable. Mike McGuire, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure, Mike. Mike, I, I was looking through your your LinkedIn profile and, and all of the your kind of progression over the years, and clearly you've done very well for yourself. What what really interested me and something I like to talk about, there were some things in there like film and photography and you'd done fundraising and you'd done something in real estate that got me really curious and I'd like to talk to you about as well in terms of that journey. But before we go there, maybe you could share with us a little bit about where you grew up and what sort of a childhood. Tell me about those formative years. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm from Dublin originally, uh, a place called Sandy Cove in Dublin. Um, my father was a, uh, a school principal um, and my mum was a medical secretary. And uh, I'm the youngest of five kids, uh, so big Irish family. And uh, we're all a very, very close family. Um, so we grew up, uh, five of us all kind of, you know, around the house and playing with each other and kind of very close uh, knit uh, as we grew up. Uh, that's it. Have you? I'm just curious. Have you maintained that over the years? That tight knit family, as you've all kind of, I'm assuming, kind of moved out of and had your own careers. Yeah. So I think um, my mother was very good at that. She always said when we were young that if we ever stop being close, that she'd uh, come back and haunt us. Uh, she's still alive and still very much the glue that holds us together. Um, but uh, I always live in fear that, uh, you know, disappointing her if we, we weren't very close. But we were all very similar minded. Um, you know, we, we grew up in a house where um, uh, entrepreneurship was very important. And if you wanted something to go out and, and kind of make it happen for yourself, uh, and I think as we've grown up, the five of us have remained very close. Um, I think technology has really helped that WhatsApp groups and things like that allow us to to stay in communication very closely. And uh, over the years or in the last few years, I've moved over to the UK and uh, it's a great an easy place for them to get over and visit. And it's very easy for me to pop back and, and visit. But I don't think anything has changed much over time, uh, apart from the way our relationships work. I'm really interested because you said it was an entrepreneurial household, yet you said your father was a school teacher, principal, and your mother was a medical secretary. That doesn't sound like a hotbed for entrepreneurship. Where did that come from? Um, I think they, both my parents were just, you know, both my parents were uh, elder siblings in their house and um, had kind of learned in that way that if you wanted something, you... I had to go and make it for yourself. So growing up, we always, you know, we, we never wanted for much. We, we uh, were very lucky to be brought up in a house with, uh, where we, we had what we needed. But if there was something that you wanted, especially in the 80s and uh, for my siblings in the 70s, if you wanted something, um, you had to figure out how to get the money yourself. So we always had side gigs and our parents would help us um kind of realize opportunities for, for us to, to make money. Um, there's some stories in, in my family that have, uh, are, are part of the, um, are a chapter in the book at this stage. But uh, as an example, when I was about 14, I really wanted a, a dog. I really wanted a golden retriever. And um, they were 200 pounds at the time. And my parents said, um, 
that if I could get the money, I could get the dog. Uh, I don't think they thought I could get the money, but that was enough of a uh, a, a goal to work towards that I was able to uh, put together a plan for how I get the money. And I took all my belongings and uh, got my parents to drive me to a car boot sale and sold everything I had. Uh, and I think I came within about two pounds and um, my parents gave me the last two pounds and we got a golden retriever and we uh, about two years later the dog that we had was from a line of champions and i ended up uh reaching out to the irish kennel club two years later uh, uh getting that dog bred and uh, the dog had eight puppies and then selling them for 250 pounds each and coming away with eight or two thousand pounds of uh, of profit two years later so at, at 16 so i think that kind of creativity that my parents promoted that you could get something if you put the work in always led to a, uh, a genuine curiosity of uh, how, how you could take it to the next level or how you can find opportunities to, to get what you want. And not just get it, but turn it over at a really nice profit margin as well, which was <laughs> yeah, interesting. I think that once that bug bites, you can't go back. Yes. Um, clear to me the seeds were really sown. Um, yeah. But when I say seeds are sown, seeds to be in business and sales. That said, you didn't start out there. I noticed you, uh, was it the first, it was Griffith College, you did a, pro, a course in film and photography. Talk to me about that. Why, why that? Um, I think it was just uh, out of a, uh, out of, well, born out of not knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I get very passionate about certain things uh, and I, I really like to get into it and learn everything that I can about it but then I see something else and I end up chasing that so I ended up doing um, uh, film and TV studies in Griffith College and then uh, it, 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 it led to some curiosity for a short amount of time but then uh, I got my first job was in property um, in as an estate agent uh, ended up working for that uh, working for that company in Dunleary for a few years and uh, then decided it felt like something I could do by myself. So I went out and set up my own business uh, as an estate agency, um, built that business up over some years. Uh, and uh, then uh, by the time I was 30, the business was doing well. Um, and I, uh, this was kind of a part of the crash of the Celtic Tiger was was happening at the time, so uh, I ended up getting out of it and uh, moving over to um, uh, UNICEF, uh, where I did fundraising. I had uh, kind of through a, a series of events, I just met some of the team in UNICEF, and uh, they were talking about corporate fundraising during the um, Celtic Tiger crash and the effect that that was having. Um, and they uh, invited me to come in and uh, look after those corporate partnerships, uh, which I did for a few years. And it was an incredible experience. Uh, what I was doing was taking the skills that I have in sales and in relationship building and putting it into um, protecting or developing corporate relationships um, that would give money to UNICEF. Uh, UNICEF is the United Nations Children Fund, and it, it works to protect the lives of children across the world. And with it, I got to see incredible things um, and, and be part of incredible operations, um, uh, whether that was 
um, going to Mozambique with uh, Fife's, um, the banana company who had donated a, a, a large sum of money um, to uh, provide mosquito nets uh, across the country, um, or uh, where we went to uh, Nigeria uh, with Donoko Callahan, who is an ambassador for UNICEF, and Fife's who were then donating money towards uh, um, er- eradicating polio. Uh, so it's an amazing opportunity to do something uh, incredibly worthwhile, very fulfilling, um, and uh, to be part of something that felt like leaving behind a bit of a, a legacy. Um, but it was an interesting how uh, a mismatch of all these different skills or different things that I'd uh, done over time had led itself to that moment where um I uh, was able to put it into practice for something for something incredible and something I'm very proud of. It's interesting because there is a common thread running throughout it, and it's it's okay. I want to call it sales, but even with the film and photography, is all about communication and emotion, yeah. and and you can see that then throughout the others as well. And clearly, the UNICEF was more than just a passion project for you as well. It was it was uh, a career or part part of your career. Uh, how did you then get from that to to this, just map that out for me. Yeah, uh, so um, I, uh, while I was at UNICEF, I, I, I was there for a few years and I started to look at tech as a, as a place. That I think having been in property, I really liked selling, I really liked developing businesses and being able to develop an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, but then at that stage, getting into tech was very difficult. I didn't have a degree. Um, and when I tried to uh, apply to Google, Facebook and Salesforce, who were the big employers in Dublin, um, nobody would look at me because I didn't have a degree. Uh, it was quite topical at the time because mm. the Yahoo CEO had been fired uh, because he'd lied on his job application that he had a CV. And when things went wrong, people started calling out that he wasn't in university. And it became a thing where it was just this box that you needed to take. No matter what your experience was, I'd been the managing director of a, a small and but successful business and had been uh, working in UNICEF with the executive directors and chief executives. Uh, but that didn't matter because I didn't have a degree. So uh, I went back to college at night, um, studied uh, a degree in business and marketing in DIT. And when I got my degree, I applied to Google, Facebook and Salesforce again. And um, I couldn't get an interview in uh, Facebook, Google. I uh, got through the first one, but because I wasn't selling tech, I didn't have the experience. And then in Salesforce, I think they had just acquired uh, a business at the time. And they said they were only hiring people for AE positions that were uh, doing the same job in a similar company, essentially Oracle, uh, you know, uh, Mm. with that kind of a copy and paste uh, job. So I said, what do you need from me? Like, I, I, I really want to be part of this company. I got the advice to go back and do a degree. I've done it. Uh, I've worked Oof. at night and got a degree. And how do I prove to you that I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a good hire? And they said, well, the only thing you can do is come back and uh, come in as a BDR. Um, and I said, well, how does that look? So I, I worked it out. And I think I was going to make a loss of about 500 quid a month. Um, so I worked it out that I could do it for a while. Uh, and I told him, look, 
I, I can't do this indefinitely. Uh, it's a this is me demonstrating that I have the ability and that I are that the and the passion to be successful. Um, so I went in as a, a, a BDR. Uh, after about six months, uh, was promoted to AE, and um, over the next six years, I had several different posi- positions. I left Salesforce in uh, twenty, uh, the end of twenty nineteen, um, as a second line RVP, uh, running a division of marketing cloud for uh, Salesforce. Right. Um, so it was an incredible position, uh, incredible. Uh, job uh, over the six years and an incredible number of jobs over the time but I loved almost every minute of it Um, uh, and I think you know going back I guess I was very fortunate to have had great managers over that time who who taught me a lot but also helped me to excel very quickly in the company Um, uh, but it was probably the again the mismatch of all the different opportunities and experiences that I had uh, that helped me to develop over that time uh, and and allowed me to uh, excel quite quickly in the company. That's a really remarkable story and and it's interesting as well it must it certainly speaks to your character of uh, being humble being taking a role where must feel like you're going backwards in terms of career progression but to take one step backwards, to take two steps forward and give yourself that, not just that leg up, but that entry point into, uh, into a different sector as well. I think a lot of people would, would balk at that. And I, I think it's really commendable. Um, I had somebody else, another guest on the podcast did something similar as well, coming from a completely different industry. And, 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 and what I want to ask you about that whole experience is how has that, the, if you like, the embargo on, employees unless you have a degree and then the hurdles you faced afterwards how has that affected your own uh, hiring process choices philosophies um it, it's interesting that you say it because i think there's a couple of different things in my past that have really humbled me and, and grounded me i think when i was 25 and i set up my first business um i knew everything and i was infallible and now I'm 40 something and I feel like I know very little and I, I'm, you know, uh, one bad, uh, one bad step away from uh, a torn ankle or something, you know, so I think the older I get, the mm. more I realize that I, I, I know less and I, uh, I, I'm more vulnerable. Um, but it was probably a couple of different examples, that being one of them where I really kind of had to swallow my pride. And I think in, in sales always came very naturally to me, you know, from the time I was a kid. It, for me, it's just get about getting really excited about something and being passionate about it. Um, and that's kind of a hobby of mine is these kind of micro obsessions. Um, and uh, in doing that to stand back and be an SDR, I remember thinking to myself, I'll crush this. It can't be that hard. And there isn't much I need to learn about sales. And I got in and I remember feeling just so overwhelmed at how different it was, how how much of a, a level up it was to sell for a SaaS company, how polished it was from everything from Sandler to, to John Barrows and Basho training um, and really kind of leaning into discovery. And there's a very big difference between selling houses and anything else. When you're selling a house, 
the hardest part isn't selling the house. It's selling. It's getting the person to pick you as the agent because yeah. that's the house sells itself most of the time. Um, but in software, the the real power is in discovery, um, and that's a very hard muscle to um, to to train, particularly when you love selling because selling is speaking and discovery is uh, actually sitting back and listening and and spending a while uh, trying to understand somebody before you diagnose it. And that was a humbling experience because I was looking at people much younger than me, uh, much earlier in their career, and they seemed to be taking to it much faster. So I just had to really try and unlearn everything and come back in with a new approach of, okay, I'm, I'm just here to learn. I'm just here to kind of soak up from all of the smarter people around me. Mm. Was there a pivotal moment in that transition that where the light bulb went on for you? Um, lots of times. Uh, and it's very hard to pick out a single one. I think a lesson that I, I, I learned probably when I went to UNICEF and that really... I didn't recognize until I went to Salesforce was a piece of advice I give to people now, which is follow people and not positions. Because if you follow the right people, the position doesn't matter. It'll change over time. And that was really, when I went to UNICEF, I went to work for one of the most inspirational leaders I've ever worked for, um, Melanie Verfudge. Um she was the South African ambassador to Ireland before she went to uh, to UNICEF. And she had this incredible way of bringing people along on the journey and uh, allowing you the creativity to problem solve and come up with ideas yourself. And I learned a huge amount from her. And I think when I went to Salesforce, I got in and I just wanted to work. And I thought, you know, um, this is a great way of doing it. But I remember meeting different leaders along the way. And my um, my first manager as an AE in Salesforce, once I got promoted out, was a guy called Richard Chambers. And um, I remember, you know, I remember my performance review with him, the thing he said, like, is the thing I needed to work on was I get a crisis of confidence every so often. And it's true. I just kind of get, if I get too many knocks, I'll, I'll start to question everything. Oh. But he had a very good way of um, allowing my creativity out and, and really making me feel very supported. And one of the, he was great for nuggets of advice, but one of the advice, piece of advice he gave was, at the start was when you're starting out, you don't need to know everything. The best thing to do is to look at successful people around you and ask if you can sit in the room and then write down everything they say and just repeat it until it becomes your words. And that became my success, the secret to my success for the six years I was there. I just always look at somebody who was doing it really well and say it in that way and copy them and mimic them and think about how would they react or how would they do it. Oh. And it really helped me to understand, you know, different roles as I was going through it. That was probably the biggest pivotal in, in kind of learning the industry. And then what I thought about as I was developing in my leadership journey is I thought about what Richard had done in that situation, how he had helped me to uh, realize that or how he had made it something that seemed very complex and overwhelming. He made it seem very simple. And that was where I started to kind of get curious in my leadership journey was how could you do that? How, he didn't actually give me any proper you know he didn't steer me in a direction or tell me who to copy he just said go find it and uh, that really kind of was a light bulb moment for me and my my people and leadership um journey 
It's interesting that because you hear this phrase, fake it till you make it, but it really isn't. It's modeling, which is how we learn in the first place. As children, we, we learn by modeling others and looking at them and repeating, breaking it down and repeating it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to know what that process was like as you went from what is very much a, if you like, and real estate is very much a, a show and tell type to now you're discovering discovery for the first time, which requires you to sometimes, depending on your personality, to really dig deep, to hold back and, and, and really change your whole mental orientation around who's at the center of this conversation. And I'm curious to know what that was like. Was it something that was difficult for you? Did it come easy to you um, as, as, as you transitioned? I still uh, battle with it all the time. It's very so. I I constantly feel like there's this this voice inside me that wants to show and tell. And I I one of the things about me is I like being liked, and it's a it's a thing that you have to battle with sometimes, uh, especially as you get into leadership because you you need to make. Uh, decisions that are in the best interest of the people in the business. But in, in sales, it's the same way. If you like being liked, you want to solution everything on the superficial level. When somebody tells you the first thing, it's oh. like, I got the answer. And there's an endorphin rush to having that, oh. uh, to kind of proving your value and making somebody appreciate your time or, or like you. And I've had to really kind of squash it down and, 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 um, only in doing that and, and really pushing for a deeper level of discovery can you actually find what the cause of the discussion is. Most of the time, people present you with the symptom and not the cause. Mm. And it's only if you're willing to sit in that discomfort um, and, and develop and, and probe and solution can you actually find uh, what, what's driving their concern or what's, what's causing the challenge. You mentioned a few things. Uh, you mentioned about being passionate. You mentioned that uh, you went through times of a crisis of confidence, I think is what you said, um, and that you like to be liked. Would you just say you're somebody who wears their heart on their sleeve? Yes. And what I'm interested in is... Does that make it easier to be vulnerable or more difficult to be vulnerable? Um, I think it makes you always vulnerable, but I think then you're always worried about being too vulnerable. Uh, I know that might be the clearest of answers, but I think part part of that is recognizing that... um, where you stand in a conversation or when you're looking to solve for somebody, when you're looking to be the rescuer, when somebody is talking to you about a challenge, that you have to fight that back because mm. if you are satisfying that urge, then you're doing something for yourself and not for the person. And certainly as a leader, that's you're never going to create a sustainable or scalable team if you're just the one solving problems. You'll only ever reach that if you are able to quiet that self-serving interest and um, focus more on, on people and helping them to overcome challenges themselves. What, do you, what characteristics, traits do you have that you feel that make you a great leader? I wouldn't say I'm a great leader, um, but uh, I think the things that resonate with my team is I'm, I'm very people-focused, I'm very values-driven, 
um, and um, I, I, I really invest in coaching and in, in helping people kind of overcome challenges themselves. I believe in people. I believe most of the time it's just about creating the right environment for them. And how I summarize it is my, my role as a leader is just to remove obstacles from people. It's, it's not to push them. It's not to kind of stand behind them and, and drive them on. It's actually to clear the path so that they can be incredible. I remember at Salesforce while I was there, Barack Obama did a speech at Dreamforce and he said, um, the, secret to, uh, uh, the, the secret to greatness is in hiring great people and then getting out of their way. And it resonated with me. And going back to those great leaders I've had, that was the thing, was that they believed in me. They demonstrated their belief in me and they gave me the opportunity to excel. And when I needed them, they were there to help put me on the guardrails that I needed or recognize the guardrails that I needed uh, to see a project through. If I had met you five years ago and now meeting you again, and I'm, I'm watching you, I'm observe you. I'm a fly on the wall watching you, uh, observing you go about working. Um, what would I notice that would have changed from a style point of view? I'm about two stone heavier. <laughs> <laughs> that's that style, though, <laughs> unless you dress it up nice. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the quarter ounce dress. Um, I guess five years ago, I would have been an AE. Uh, now I'm in a leadership position. Um, so I think, you know, when you're an AE, you need to be quite singular. You're focused more on uh, the opportunities that you're working and your career and your development. And now as a leader, I'm probably a bit more, a bit more um, in a position to look at big picture and, and probably would come across as more relaxed than I, I would have been. But that's because leadership isn't always about the instant results. Sales can often be about the instant results. You win a deal or you don't. And you've got a big deal that you're working on pipeline, you're trying to get it through stages. Leadership is a more long-term journey and focusing on the lead indicators that will ultimately result in the lag indicators. But the lead indicators, are you don't get that instantaneous release as much as you would have as a, as a salesperson. Which of the two roles for you personally gives you a greater sense of A, achievement and B, accomplishment? Uh, leadership, definitely, um, for both. I think um, in the last two years I've been working at um, Iterable. Um, I joined the business uh, two years ago. I heard that they were opening an office in London and uh, I reached out to their leadership team um, and uh, asked them if they would be interested in uh, a, a VP in, from the industry opening it. Actually, I it was November 2019, uh, and I'd heard that they were opening the office, and I tried to think of a creative way to stand out. I'd read an article from their CEO that said um, for winning the first contract, they had, had to find a way to stand out um, and had to make the customer feel special. So I wondered how I could do that for them. So uh, after I'd heard they sent two people to London to open up their office, I went to Harrods, um, got some Christmas decorations, Big Ben covered in snow, red bus covered in snow, red post box covered in snow, and sent over a Christmas box with my CV printed on a Christmas card uh, saying wow. I'm a VP in London. 
you're going to need a VP. I'd love to talk. And before I knew it, I was on a plane to San Francisco uh, and got eight hours of back-to-back interviews and came home and the next week had a job offer and handed my notice into Salesforce after six phenomenal years there. Um, but back to your question, this is the most rewarding because when I joined, there was eight, I was employee number eight. We're about 65 now. Um, I was very fortunate to have uh, some other great leaders in the business when I joined on the customer success and marketing side. And gradually over time, we've put together this incredible team. We're very values driven. Uh, We know how to win, but we do it as a team. And that is the most fulfilling thing I've ever been part of because every deal we do now, it will last year past uh, 100 million in uh, AORR and we're now on that path to IPO. But we're still at a point where every single deal that we do makes a big material difference to that business. And when we get AEs and when we get new leaders into the business and they win that deal, they've done it in an incredibly hard way at times because we're competing with the Salesforce. We're competing wow. with an Adobe or an Oracle, these these big established companies with infinite marketing budgets. And we don't have that. We just have a great product and great people um, and great word of mouth. And we have to go in and really focus on partnership and help people realize that their money is safer with us than it is in a bigger company. And with that, the lows are very low and the highs are incredibly high. And that is, uh, that's the most rewarding place I've been is in recruiting great people, helping them to develop and then being part of their wins when they've won an incredible deal or an incredible logo. Uh, it's been part of that or watching mm. it uh, from the sidelines. And curious to know what else is part of that David versus Goliath story because uh, yes, you hire great people, um, but then you also have to assume that your competitors also hire great people. Um, and they also have great customer stories. What else is there? What else is there when you are David and you're going up against Goliath uh, and you don't have, although you're getting there, I guess, but you, you just, you're, you're not been around as long and for some customers, the, the Oracle can be the, or the Adobe can be the, in their mind, the safer option. You know, it's the old IBM thing. How do you address that other than through your people? Yeah. Um, and the way I, I see it is we need to work harder to win their business and to prove uh, that we're worth, worth, worthy of the investment. Now, the thing is, once we get into an evaluation and once we can be taken seriously, our win rates are really impressive. And we do it by focusing on partnership. The the technology will sell itself. Uh, Iterable is a phenomenal product and um, a a world leader uh, from a technology standpoint. It's the other stuff that goes with it. And the Salesforce, the Oracles, Adobe's, they've got their big conferences and everything like that. And there's a lot of furore that goes with it that builds credibility. And there's an old adage that Salesforce has that nobody gets fired for buying Salesforce because it's a good product um, it's, uh, and it's very well recognized. And if you can't believe in Salesforce, then who can you believe in? Oh. But Iterable is a far superior product for for marketing it's a um it's a point solution but it it helps people build breast of breed stacks and what we need to do is go in and help people see that that is going to ultimately drive the highest revenue for their business but we won't do that by being 
overly confident. We won't do that by um, kind of just a lot of waiting for the product to, to show us. Right. What we will, how we will win is if we're a values-driven business and we help people see how values drive every interaction we have as a business. Because ultimately, we can say whatever we want in an evaluation. We can promise the sun, the moon, and the stars, but the real work begins after the contract is signed. And I've been in situations where customers have been leaving bigger platforms and moving over to us because their volumes are so big that older platforms or legacy platforms can't handle it. And... Um, We've had that conversation go, don't measure us by what we promise now, measure us by how we react when we hit a speed bump. Because in every relationship, there's going to be a speed bump. And what you should be able to do is measure each other by how you react at those times. And we're very fortunate to have a very passionate customer base that we that act as references for us. So ultimately, we always say at the end, when you believe we're the right provider, we'll open up our references and allow you to speak to somebody, uh, hear it from them rather than us. Yeah, I've always thought, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've often thought that even at maybe just even at a subconscious level, even if it's not acknowledged explicitly, that w- one of the top factors why somebody would choose an organization is who's going to be in my corner when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's a feeling that people get is yeah. who who do I know who's not going to run away and hide? Yeah, and uh, I think that could be it's like the old days. Do you remember the back? I don't think they ran the ads here, but there was the old Avis versus Hertz thing. And yeah. Avis came, Hertz were always number one, number one. And Avis came out and he says, you know, we're number two. That, therefore, we try harder. I think exactly. there's an element of that as well. That is knowing um, your position as an underdog. And actually, it was yeah. the advice my dad gave to me years ago. I remember pitching back in my property days, which influences me now. But I remember ringing my dad and I was going up for this uh, development that I really wanted and I knew I was going against a, 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 a Sherry Fitzgerald, a big organizer. And um, I remember calling my dad and asking, how do I how do I come across as big like Sherry Fitz? Because that's what they want. And he said, well, how do you know that's what they want? Mm. And I said, sometimes you want the underdog because you feel mm. the underdog is going to work harder for you. And that's been a mantra here is, you know, how do we oh. just show people that we're, we're here to work with them, we're, we're yeah. here to solution with them. Yeah, I think there's an awful lot in that. It's like in sports, apart from raving fans, everybody's rooting for the underdog as long as the underdog makes the effort and, and puts their all into it. And if they do that, we, we actually will root for them. If they can't be bothered, if they just roll over, it's a different story. I think that's true in business too, I, I, I guess. That's the, the thing about hiring and to a question you asked earlier about how do you get the hiring right? You're, you're hiring for attitude mm. uh, predominantly. You know, if people can sell and they've got the right attitude, they'll be enormously successful. Mm. There's a, the analogy that's often used for startups is that join the rocket ship. And when I was joining Iterable after six years in Salesforce, I thought, okay, cool. Yeah, you know, I get the analogy. You turn up, you get in the rocket, you go up to space. And over the past two years, I've I've really kind of thought about yeah. it. There's, there's been great days. There's been awful days. And, you yeah. know, the great days uh, make all the, the hard days worthwhile. But to me now, that analogy means that it's not about turning up in a spacesuit and somebody whispering in your ear and you sit in the cockpit and you go off to space. It's some days you're in the cockpit and you're going up to space. Some days you're hanging on for outside and you feel like somebody forgot to let you in and you're screaming to get back inside. And some days you've got both. You wake up in the morning, you're in the cockpit, then you're on the outside of the rocket. 
And really, you need to love that feeling of not knowing what's going to happen mm. next. You need to love yeah. and have the curiosity of, uh, right, what, what's today going to hold in store and how yeah. am I going to overcome it? Yeah. You're also building the rocket as you fly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Technology can go on and on. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious because you work, work for Salesforce, which is, you know, m- mega corporation now. And, and iterable, certainly when you started it in EMEA, it, it, it's a startup, right? Yeah. Um, which, which gives you greater sense of satisfaction? Uh, it really depends on the time of my life. Salesforce was the best job I ever had until I joined Iterable. Um, and what I loved about Salesforce was those initial teams in Dublin, it felt like a small team on a big ambition. Uh, Salesforce, I think, had a, a billion in revenue. It's a big, it's much bigger than Iterable is now, but at the time it felt small. And there was this feeling of uh, one for all and all for one. No matter how big or small your deal was, you could ask anybody for help. And the minute it was closed, nobody wanted they praise. It was everybody disappeared. And it was an amazing feeling. And gradually over the six years, that started to become more and more rare. And I missed it. And uh, when I saw Iterable, and I I remember the night I heard Iterable had come to London, um, I ended up that night just uh, like creep diving into everything about Iterable uh, that I could find online for hours and hours. And my wife woke up during the night and saw the light of my phone and I was I was still kind of looking into things. And I told her like, the, the values of Iterable, uh, Iterable has four values, um, balance, growth mindset, humility, and trust. They could summarize, when I read into them, they could summarize everything that I felt in Salesforce in those early days, the one for all, all for one, find a way. We might not have the budget, we might not have the abilities, but let's find a way to make it happen and and work as a team towards a common goal. And that's what excited me about Iterable. And ever since I've joined, it's just felt like that incredible, um, incredible mission, but with a very people focus. You know, we really look after our people and we really lean into those values. And that's why we've got a great culture. And that's why we're we're, um, thankfully scaling very well. You mentioned you used a very creative approach to get the attention when you were going for that role and also starting out with the film and photography, which also is a very creative uh, sphere. One, are you a creative person? And I guess what I really want to understand is how important is creativity in in the business to, in today's world, given the, the environment we're working in? So I would say I'm a creative person with shitty execution. Uh, so <laughs> typically in this house, I have... Uh, I have the bones of an idea and my wife turns it into something incredible. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I knew I wanted to stand out for the executive team at Iterable. Um, and the best I could come up with, I was I was going to get a pair of toy binoculars and send a Christmas card with the toy binoculars saying, I admire your vision. And my wife facepalmed and said, no, look, they're going to London. you got to do something that's London yeah. themed. And she took it and made this incredible idea, which I pass off as my own. Uh, but I think like going back to that, yes, I'm creative. I, I like the idea of pushing the boundaries and figuring out a way to stand out and a way to demonstrate to people that you want that business more. Always play mm-hmm. the underdog and uh, and demonstrate that 
you've got the right attitude. But I'm very fortunate from my leadership team and the people in Iterable is I've always tried to be the dumbest person in the room or have people smarter than me. And I'm very fortunate to have people who, who put up with me and these kind of uh, suggestions and who always seem to figure out a way to make it um, more polished. Uh, so basically just still goes back to that advice find some smart people in the room, copy what they do, and maybe suggest some things and hope that they turn it into something great. Who in, who would you say, past or present, inspires you the most? In uh, just worldwide? Well, you could say, so again, it could be somebody from your past, it could be somebody current, it could be somebody in a work environment or a non-work environment at all, just somebody could be a muse, or just whose story, when you hear it, lifts you and inspires you to do better work, for example? Um, I'd say my dad. Uh, my dad was the second eldest of 11 kids. Uh, his dad died very young. He kind of started to work and then went back to college and um, uh, became a teacher, eventually became principal of a school in Dublin and then always had... Uh, different projects that he'd do on the side that helped us to, you know, grow as a family and, and, and provided for us. But he's always instilled that hard work ethic in us with my mum, but um, really kind of said to us that anything is possible as long as you put your mind to it and you take a setback as just a temporary setback, just find a way to, to find a way to make it work. And that has really stood to us. And with the five kids, we've all managed to demonstrate that in different ways of our lives. But I think when I reach those times and he's outside of my wife, I would say if there's a big thing like that, it's my dad who I'd call. Um, he generally doesn't offer much advice. Most of the time, what you hear on the other end is just listening. It's not even silence. It's just, you know, he's listening. And occasionally he comes out with a, 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 a golden nugget that reassures you and lets you go off and uh, rethink your problem and come up with a way of getting around it. You know, it's wonderful you have that relationship. It's, um, it's, I noticed there, is a, there seems to be a theme, a theme or thread there with people I've had on the podcast who are doing great work is that very often they'll talk about a parent as being an inspiration, somebody who's there, who's unconditional support. Um, and it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying it's universal, but it's certainly, it's quite common. And it's a wonderful thing to have. I'm just wondering does, how that influences you. I didn't ask you if you're a parent, um, but just even as a, as, as a human. Uh, yeah, I have, th I have three kids. Um, uh, I have a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old. So I'm in wow. a busy stage. Uh, <laughs> That's it's, less, it's less about parental guidance at this stage and more um, just don't let them run with scissors. But uh, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, it's a different age, right? And like I, um, I adore my parents and they've been an incredible influence on in my life. But I saw great advice recently as well, which is don't try to be your parents. They didn't know what they didn't know. And what I take from that to be is like, 
there's 40 years uh, between me and, um, and my parents. And in that 40 years, the world has changed. The way we parent has changed. Our understanding of it has changed. And what I really just want to achieve when I think about what my parents did was your real goal is to well raise well-rounded adults. That's oh. it. And, you know, a bit like sales leadership is it's very easy to focus on the lag indicators because they're the ones that give you the endorphin rush, but it's the lead indicators that are most important. How are you setting up guardrails for your children and ways of learning for your children? And how do you teach your children to be curious? How do you teach your children that happiness is just as important as success? And really raise your children that with the idea that there'll be ups and downs over time. But as long as you focus on that long-term goal, Mm. Uh, it'll always seem like a, a straight line up and really yeah. just trying to raise good people. The best the best parental advice I ever had was make sure they've got good friends. As teenagers, once they yeah. get to that 12, 13 years of age, is that because at that stage they really, you know, there's that 13 to 23 where you don't listen to your parents. And uh, they just make sure they have good friends and it was probably the best piece of advice ever because I see how much they're influenced by their friends and their choices that they make. Um, talk to me, Mike, about what you like to do when you're not working. How do you unwind and, rela and, and relax? <laughs> I, I told you I'm a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old, right? <laughs> you did. Uh, you did. Yeah. I obviously, I'm, yeah. I'd forgotten what that's like, I honestly, because my, my youngest now is 20. I have absolutely forgotten what it's like, but yeah. thinking about it. And mine yeah. was spaced out a bit more. Yeah, we, we refer to this as the treadmill. Like we, we wake yeah. up in the morning, one of them is crying and yeah. the treadmill starts. And then you're on the treadmill until seven and they all go to bed. Then you clean the house and then we get into bed. So uh, it, the, the way that I get to unwind is typically the best time is in the morning. Uh, my middle son wakes up. Um, I bring him downstairs. He's still a little bit like sleepy. So we, uh, I pour a giant cup of coffee and I sit down beside him and he just plays with his toys or might watch a cartoon or something. And that's probably the most relaxed and optimistic I feel in the morning. Uh, oh. But uh, outside of that, uh, a lot of, I have a Peloton and things like that. And it's kind of finding opportunities. Oh. The great thing about having a Peloton is it's 30 minutes of concentrated where I, I can say to my wife or I can say to work that I'm gone for 30 minutes and I'll be back and you can get on it, get it done. And it, you get the endorphin rush. You feel like you're helping your body overall and uh, then you can get back to things. Mm. It's for got to be people listening to this in, in the future. So to timestamp it. It's uh, late March 2022, and I, I still don't know where exactly we are on the timeline of COVID. Um, my guess is we're, we're, in the end, we're in the end zone, I hope. But um, what, when you look back on the past two years, what good has come out of it for you? What, what, it, it, um, what, it's, what good has come from it is that it's helped me realize how much I like being in a situation of adversity and how much I like having to think about ways to be to create success or to create an atmosphere of success for my teams and uh, we uh, when i started in interval in february uh, of 2020 i had four days in an office in london before i sat down with the other two leaders in the business and said this COVID thing 
uh, seems to be everywhere. Why don't we work from home for a few days until this blows over? And then we'll get <laughs> like, And we had no A's or anything like that. We were still kind of ramping our only AE. Mm. So for two years, we built this business in a pandemic. We couldn't do traditional events. We couldn't send cupcakes to people's offices or anything like that. Everybody was working from home. And everybody moved to LinkedIn for prospecting. So we had to find a way to to stand out in a really narrow mode of prospecting. And uh, we figured it out. Like We, we had um, some success in the early days. It's become more common over time. But in that adversity, we really found a way to grow. And I think that's my greatest takeaway from COVID was it doesn't matter what kind of environment is around you. You really need to focus on the circle of control. And the circle of control is thinking about inside the circle is all the things that I can control and I can influence. Outside of the control is the stuff that I can't. And at the time, it was 2020, it was Donald Trump was on a tirade. COVID was happening. We, you know, Everything was in lockdown. The future was incredibly uncertain. The stock market had tumbled. I was less than six months in a job with uh, two kids and a pregnant wife. Um, and, you know, uh, with an American company, it was well-funded, but just setting up here, I didn't know what they were like. And, you know, if everything they'd said about their cultures and values uh, was shallow. But in the end, I focused on what I could control, um, tried to create an environment for the team where they could be successful. And they did the rest of it just let these incredible people take over. And I was very fortunate to be in a business that is incredibly values driven and puts people first. So okay. I think out of COVID, that's my takeaway. Uh, imagine, I want you to imagine that you've just retired. Your kids are growing up. They're independent at this stage. What would you like to do with yourself and your time? Um, so on one level, I think like I, I like obsessing over things. I like picking up hobbies and dropping them. Um, my house is filled with half hobbies, uh, very expensive half hobbies. There's a pair of golf clubs in the attic uh, that are, uh, have not been moved from the attic in about two or three years, but I probably will stay there until I'm retired. But I like the idea of obsessing over things and just getting into something and like uh, being curious at it for a while and then finding a new passion and moving on. And additionally, I think the big, uh, something I'd love to do is uh, from my time in UNICEF, uh, seeing um, the effect that education could have on the world um, and on uh, a young population and having my father as a school teacher, I'd love to uh, get back into development at some point and maybe build a school uh, somewhere or uh, try and leave some sort of a legacy on the world in that way. Okay. Two final questions before I let you go, Mike. Um, let's play Desert Island. Uh, you're going to Desert Island. You can take one item with you. Can't be family. Can't be, you, know, you, you can have your phone and your laptop, right? But a personal possession, something that if your house were burning down, you'd, you'd run into rescue. Does anything come to mind? Yes, I have a... Uh, I, only because I was looking at it a second ago when you'd asked me a question, I was thinking about it. I have a uh, a painting on my wall. It's from my mother-in-law, and it is by an Irish artist, and it's called Fortune Favors the Brave, and it's silhouettes of, of people who are trying to make their way up, and there's words along it, like um, along the ball, it's, uh, along the bottom, it's 
uh, dull, safe option, no surprises. And as you go up, there's more things like, you know, uh, take a chance and that kind of thing. And my sister had it in her house. And I rem- about 10 years ago, I had a, a, a battle with cancer. And um, uh, when I was in recovery, uh, it, it was quite a hard time. And I remember my my mother-in-law talking to me and I said, I remember this painting. And I said, look, these things happen. Sometimes you're falling down. Sometimes you're going up. I'll be back. I'll figure out a way to, to make this happen. And I told her about this and she uh, went to try and find it as a present for my recovery. Uh, the artist had retired and uh, this was out of print. And my mother-in-law, is, she doesn't do technology. You know, she she uh, wasn't born with that kind of thing. So uh, she found an old way of doing it, which she just went around every single shop that had ever sold for this artist, managed to get the artist's home address uh, managed to call to her and told her about me and uh, she the artist went and made one more edition of this with a poem at the bottom and on the bottom of it it says good luck in your recovery Mike oh wow I have it on my office wall and at times when things seem uh, back to that advice I had from a manager years ago when I'm in that little bit of a uh, despondent mood uh, I look at that and just think you know, think about far away. This will just be a blip that you might not even remember. Just focus on doing the right things and the results will happen. So that's probably what I'd take. It's wonderful. Um, I know I said I had two questions, but you've said something else now I have to ask you about before I ask the final question, which is your battle with cancer, if you don't mind me asking, is what did you learn about yourself as you battled cancer and what positives have you taken from the experience? Um, I think what I learned about myself is that you're you're nothing without the people around you. Um, it's the people. It was the people around me. I had just met my wife. I was going out with my wife about four months, I think, five months when it happened. And I remember going into hospital and having the surgery and uh, waking up in the middle of the night. My wife was still sitting there. You know, we were girl, was girlfriend, boyfriend at the time. We were just going out and she was there. And I woke up and I couldn't speak because the, the the thing for my windpipe or whatever. And she gave me water. And I remember looking at her in my head and saying, I'm going to marry her. Uh, and then, you know, in the end, afterwards, my family all turning up to the hospital, driving me home, calling in all the time, being around me and dealing with the stuff the life happens around that you know banks are calling for different things or you've got to make repayments all that kind of thing family just stood in and uh for me it was just realizing how important they all were to me uh and how you know at times like that you don't realize that's going to happen but all these people around you kick in to support you when your time on this planet is done mike how would you like to be remembered uh, great dad. So, the number one, like your so life kind of gets so busy and time. And my daughter's five. Uh, this week is just one of those weeks where she's really developed, and I find myself looking at her and thinking, "How did five years go like that? All every day was tough, but then all mm. of a sudden the years seem to fly." And uh, I think if I can raise them into well-rounded adults and I have a healthy relationship with them as a father in 20 years, 30 years, where they feel that no matter what happens, they can come to me and we'll fix it or solve it together. Um, 
that's what I'd like to leave behind mm. and that they do the same for their kids eventually. Mike McGuire, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much. It was great.